We're in a teaching series called Citizens. We just did our first week last week. I think Graham came over and spoke. And what we're doing is just wanting to do a whole series of teaching um, over the next eight or nine weeks about how Christians can be good citizens of earth as well as being citizens of heaven. And so if you're a guest and you're just you're maybe not a Christian, you're just coming, maybe this is one of the first few times here. There's a lot of people here I don't know. So you may be reasonably new, I don't know. Um, we just want, want to be able to sort of teaching through it, really to give as far as we can a Christian perspective on a lot of big things that Christians have to think about anyway, but particularly at a time of year like this as we're leading into an election. So we're going to be looking at issues like government and family and war and marriage and economics and life and death and lots of things like that. And this morning, as Jez said, we're going to be looking at the ever sticky issue of immigration. How should Christians think about immigration, border control, asylum seekers, the EU, goodness knows. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? It's not a very difficult topic, and it was really nice, actually, just looking out and thinking, wow, there's just, it's, it's a very diverse room, even this morning, and it's really great to be in a room with lots of people who, I was just seeing two friends of mine, just as I walked back in, having gone out to get a drink, both of them not from the UK, both of them just with new, you know, new kids, and it's just great to have uh, just such a diverse gathering this morning. But I do want to speak into it because it's something Christians can find a challenge to think through biblically. Because the Bible doesn't, surprisingly enough, doesn't give us an awful lot of answers as to how you're supposed to vote or whether or not you're supposed to have a referendum on membership of the EU. And it doesn't tell us whether or not to have an Australian-style point system or what sort of checks to place on people entering the country. Because the Bible is written in a day when there's no such thing as a national border. This is a thing we'll come back to a bit later. There's just no such thing. The Roman Empire covers the, pretty much the entire known world. And so when the New Testament is written, Jesus is speaking, Paul is writing, Hebrews, James, Revelation. In those days, you could walk from Carlisle to Baghdad without crossing any national boundaries. You could go from like southern Scotland to Iraq, and you wouldn't even need a passport or equivalent in those days because you were only ever in the empire of one nation. And that means it's very difficult sometimes to pick up biblical principles and apply them to modern debates or discussions about immigration. So it's an important thing to think through. I've had a couple of silly experiences with immigration, which I'll just share with you so you know this is not an impersonal subject for me. Um, How many people here have gone through immigration in America at some point in their lives? These guys, like the Americans, I would think you'd you'd agree, American people are the nicest people in the world except for the first hundred yards of your journey into their country when they become the rudest people in the world. Have you experienced that? So I was there with my nine-month-old son at the time and my wife, and transatlantic flying with a nine-month-old is difficult. If you've done it, you're feeling pretty exhausted and tired, and you really want to meet your friends at the other end and just go and, you know, stop the flying. And we're in this very long queue at Chicago Airport, and we've been winding around for absolutely ages in one of those interminable queues when you do this just for hours and hours and hours. And then you eventually get to the front, and you hand over those long, thin, green cards, which I don't think, we don't have to do them now because of the new system, but you used to have to fill out these long, green, thin cards, which basically said, here's your name, here's your passport number or something, and no, I was not involved in the Holocaust. And no, I do not carry any bombs. And I'm I'm obviously, whenever I read that form, I just think, would I tick yes if I did? That's what I'm always puzzled by. It's it's a very strange question. So you're kind of ticking all these things. But of course, you do it. And you go through and you hand over your two forms, one for me and one for my wife. At which point, the incredibly rude person on the desk says, what about the boy? You need to fill out a form for him. Um, And I was like, oh, I'll just do that now. And he said, no, 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 you need to get out of the queue, which we've been in for hours, and fill in a form to declare that my nine-month-old son was not involved in the Holocaust. 
And I find that whole process extremely strange and annoying and think, if that's the way you treat people on the way in, they don't feel like, and behind them, you have these videos of all these people going, welcome to the United States, aloha, oh, howdy, partner, and all of this, on these kind of people all across the nation, lovely, smiling people, and underneath is somebody saying, innocent, it's guilty until proven innocent. I do not believe that your nine-month-old wasn't involved in genocide until you've proved that he was. I mean, it's just bizarre. And then I had it with an American friend coming here. I thought, Americans is rude, but British people, we're really welcoming. We love everybody, don't we? Turns out not, because my friend Pete, who's been living with us for two years and serving as an intern in the church, he had the same experience coming back the other way when he was coming over to live with us. We, he's was perfectly legal to be here. He's going to be here for up to six months. He's allowed to do that on his visa. But he comes over, and uh, they didn't believe him, and they thought he was going to stay and disappear into the ether. And they rang me. I'm on my way up to Gatwick. I, they, ring, they ring me, and they say, we've got this man here, Pete Cooley. He claims he knows you. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to be doing this and this and this. He's going to be living here. This is how his costs are covered. And they said, yeah, we don't believe it. And they detained him, and they threw him in jail. And if you've ever been to Gatwick, you, um, there's these kind of big detention centers, but they are prisons. You know, they are sort of every door is locked. You, open, you unlock a door, you walk through, you know, there's no natural light, you kind of walk through another door, it's locked. He had a cellmate, they detained him, and they throw him, put him in jail, and then send him back to America. And he was there for another nine months before he was allowed to come in. And uh, we say goodbye to him last night, actually, at a party in which Jez was dancing to the Spice Girls, but we'll just leave that for now. Um, just <laughs> and uh, that's just by the by. Um, Amy certainly was. Um, so I've had kind of odd immigration experiences at, at both ends of the, that's just in the States, and I suspect that those, those experiences are nothing compared to what Pete said was, well, it was, I was treated with a lot of respect because I'm American and English speaking, but I was in a room where I was probably the only white face, and almost everybody else there was having a much rougher time of it than I was, um, because the assumption was, well, he's American and university educated, he's probably okay, even though they'd thrown him in jail. And as I, it just gave me a bit of a window of insight into the way in which nation states in policing borders can be in incredibly rude and offensive to people, even if sometimes that job needs to be done. I just think sometimes the way it's handled isn't always very good. But the Bible doesn't tell us any about any, how to do any of that stuff because there's no such thing as a national border in those days. So, it, it, and it doesn't tell us at that point, yes, you must vote UKIP or no, you must not vote UKIP even. It doesn't tell you those sorts of things. And so what it, what it does and what we're going to look at in a, as we look at Colossians 3 in a moment, what it does do in the Bible is to proclaim the death of us and them, if you like, as a way of thinking, us and them. It says that's dead in Jesus. That's now not the way to think about anything. You must not have this sense of our group being superior to their group and our group being insured and protected over here and their group being left to their own devices over there. The us and them thinking that characterizes so much of the world is crucified with Christ and we must undo it and we must live lives that demonstrate to the world that that's not how we should behave and that's not how we should think. Because humans have always had those categories, right? Our group and their group. It, it depends which generation you live in as to how those groups are defined. In some cases, it's our family versus their family. Our clan, their clan. Our tribe, their tribe. Our city versus their city. Our team versus their team. Our religious group versus their religious group. Our culture, our language, all those things. Our nation as opposed to theirs. And humans think like that. We very naturally think like that. It's a way of protecting ourselves. Because if I'm in the same group as these guys, and you guys are all marginalized, we feel secure and safe, and we're able to look down on you, and as we push down on you, we become more safe and secure ourselves. Humans just do that all the time. And what Scripture does, 
And what God does in Jesus is to proclaim the death of us and them. So that's not how I want you to think or to live or to do anything. Your alignment, your affiliation, your identity, your sense of self and community is not to be defined by your geography or your family or your language. It's to be defined in Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world to the way you think about how we should handle immigration, treat foreigners, and so on. So one particular text which I want us to look at in, this, in which this happens is in Colossians 3. So although it will appear up here, I'd, just, I'd recommend you always bring Bibles anyway because you can follow through, go back whenever you like, and we're going to have some other slides as well later. But this is Colossians 3, verses 1 to 11. This is Paul speaking to the church in Colossae. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, because you're hidden with Christ, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, as in in Christ, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. It's a beautiful passage, and Paul is just, he's quite, in some ways what he's trying to do is quite simple. He's saying Jesus Christ has died and been risen, and you have died and been risen with him, and therefore, in line with that new reality, you need to put to death the earthly bits of you and embrace and put on the heavenly bits of you, the new identity that you have in Jesus. Get rid of the old and kill it and put on the new. And he defines what he means by the old and the new in three broad areas. He said he's got, there's three bits of you where the earthly you, the old you, needs to be killed and the new you needs to be put on. And those three areas are, in this text anyway, sex, speech, and for this morning, sectarianism, if you like, or racial distinctions and division within the community of God. Sex, we're not going to talk about this morning, verses 5 to 7. Speech, not going to talk about that either, verses 8 to 10. But in verse 11, he adds this, this extra idea. He said, yes, of course, the old you involves people who are sleeping around and disregarding marital covenants, and you just going and having sex with anybody you wanted. That's part of the old you. Put it to death. Also, the way you speak, your speech was obscene and it was disgusting and it was foul and it, would, it was offensive to God and often to other people. So put that to death as well. And all the Christians then are going, yes, 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 I understand. Okay, yes, sex, speech, fine. And then he says in verse 11, and a third thing, I want, I want you to know this too, in Christ you cannot have division between Greeks and Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. Get rid of all of those divisions. Christ is all and is in all. The gospel proclaims, if you like, the death of us and them. So this isn't, we no longer define ourselves those ways. So Greek and Jew, right? So people who are Jewish and everybody else. Circumcised and uncircumcised, another way of saying this. And then I think this, the third pair is, if anything, more important than either of those. 
because probably almost everyone in this room is a Gentile and not circumcised as a Jewish person. And, and so it's quite easy for us to think in a way, well, yeah, I could understand Paul is saying that's gone because that's just a distinction about saying in the new age, the Jews and the Gentiles have become one and nobody has the rights to dis- disregard the other. So I, get, I understand that. The, the interesting thing in this third pair is he also says there's no barbarians and Scythians. But we don't very often meet barbarians, so it's worth thinking who they are. And Scythians, I suspect none of us have ever met. A barbarian is somebody, from the Greek point of view, who lives outside the boundaries of civilized society. So you're in the Roman Empire, you have Roman laws, Roman culture, you may know some Latin, you probably speak Greek if you're in a large part of the empire. You're the civilized people. And out there, beyond the pale, in the funny, dark reaches beyond the empire's boundaries, are these people you've heard of but probably haven't met very often called the barbarians. And it's, I think, speculated that the reason they're called barbarian is literally because people went ba 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 you know, because they were like, oh, they, can't, they didn't make any sense. They're just incoherent babblers. Ba 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 So they called them barbarians. They were just people beyond the pale. You know, I often use this as a great example of what it looks like, but in, if you've seen Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, there's a moment when the witch says to Alan Rickman, you must yoke the strength of the Celts. You know, go and find, get the Celts to work with you to destroy Robin Hood. And Alan Rickman goes, Celts? They drink the blood of their dead. It's this sort of wonderful thing that people in the old world used to say about people. They're like, ugh, I can't believe we would work with them. They're these disgusting people we've heard these weird rumors about. In the ancient world, that was the barbarians. They were the people like that. It still sounds that way in English today. Barbarians. And Paul is saying, it's not just that there's no religious division between Jew and Greek now, it's actually that there's no racial divisions either. You mustn't think in terms of us and the barbarians. And he says Scythians. You mustn't think in terms of Scythians. Now, the Scythians were an Iranian nomadic people who lived in Central Asia. And Paul is saying, you mustn't think about them being divided off either. They were really, if you like, the people who lived as far away as possible. So there are some terms like that that you hear swirling around in modern English, of people referring to far-gone lands and far-gone countries. In our culture, because people are generally pretty sensitive, hopefully, about saying things, you don't tend to use derogatory terms for places like that. But in many generations, people have, and Scythians and barbarians were like those sorts of things. They were just way far, oh, these people off on the other side of the world. And Paul is saying, we don't have divisions like that now. Because of Christ, you do put together death, your, your, the w- bad ways of using sex and bad ways of using speech, but you also put to death this sectarian division in the church. And you mustn't think in terms of us and them. Jesus said that was true of family. Who's my mother? Who's my mother? Anybody who does my will is my mother. And Peter found it was true of religion, if you like, Jewishness. Do not call unclean what God has called clean. But Paul is saying here it's about nationality as well. It's about geography. It's about culture. Here, there is no British, Polish, Pakistani, Afghan, but Christ is all and in all. Right? So that's, he's saying you, you must put that to death. Now, that does not tell us all the things we want to know about immigration or migration policy. But it does, in my view, give quite a lot of things that are said in public dialogue about immigration a punch on the nose, right? So often you find punchlines and headlines appear which are basically us and them thinking disguised in policy terms. That would be my observation. You often find people that the debate can be couched in terms of 
as if it's about, well, yes, but really, do we have the money? Do we have the space? Do we have all these things? But actually what's happening is it's smuggling in us and them thinking, Jew and Greek, barbarian sit in, is smuggling that in to a headline or a punchline when, and pretending it's about policy when actually it's really just about us and them. It's about boundaries. It's about us separating ourselves from others and feeling better than them. So I have done some ranting in the past about the Daily Mail I was going to go for the Daily Mail this time around, and I thought, no, I won't use the Daily Mail because, one, lots of people in the church read it, and I always offend them when I call it the paper for the discerning Nazi, um, and it just upsets people. And the, and the second thing is that having already done that rant, I don't feel I need to do it again, so instead, I should, I'm kind of kidding, but only just. Um, but instead, I'll take a different daily newspaper. I'll take the Daily Express. And, use, and it just this is for some examples of the way in which us and them think drives a lot of the ways in which public debate is framed. So here, this is in a three-month period, all of these things appeared on, the, this is the front page of the Daily Express, a selection of front pages in just a three-month period, okay? So, first, meet the dog who ate an Aston Martin, granted a bit strange, but on the right hand, one in four babies is born to a migrant. Next one, asylum seekers, how they cost you 400 million pounds. Next one, migrant numbers out of control, too many allowed in, admits PM. Next one, Migrants facing ban on benefits. Next one. Outrage. Free NHS for illegal migrants. Outrage. I know who's outraged sometimes in these cases. It's often the person who writes the headline. Or, as we found out yesterday, the person who owns the newspaper, actually. Next one. Migrants face benefits ban. Okay, next one. 1.4 billion benefits bill for new EU migrants coming to Britain. Next one. This is all inside three months. Now migrants mass in new camp across the channel. Next one. Benefits Britain, here we come. Fears as migrant flood begins. Next one. Migrant numbers at crisis points. Next one. Migrant beggars on £36,000 a year. That is such an unpleasant headline. Uh, and then last one. Migrants set to flood in. In three months. Right? Now... There may well be some intelligent debate and thought behind some of these dis issues. I, I don't know. But what that, dis what that says to me is that there's a colossal amount of us and them thinking. We are these people, and over there there are other people, migrants, and we need to make sure that those boundaries are preserved as crisply and clearly as possible. And often it is simply us and them thinking masquerading as something else. We can now remove the Daily Express, and then the next time I do a rant, it'll be about The Guardian or something, I don't know, okay? Now, behind the headlines, a lot of the arguments there are actually pretty unconvincing, but they can still be very powerful because they tap into an us-and-them thinking that exists in most people, okay? So, for instance, the very word immigrants or migrants is what we call people who come to our country, but when we go to their country and live there, we're called expats, it's nice, isn't it? Oh, no, no we, we're, not, we're not immigrants. We're expatriates. But imagine if somebody was to say, there's a very large expatriate Bangladeshi community in Tower Hamlets. Everybody would say, they're not expats. They're immigrants. Do you know? And there's a way, that's us and them thinking, isn't it? We, just, we apply one word to us, which is, well, we're still British, but, you know, we're allowed to go and buy houses in the Dordogne. But imagine, imagine if the house in the door door, the newspapers around there, the, the Daily Express was just sort of saying, migrants set to flood in and buy all your houses. But do you see, it's us and them thinking, because we don't use the same categories. We even don't even use the same words to describe what other people do as we do to describe what we do. 
So here's 10 things that I've heard, that are arguments I hear used that I think are pretty unconvincing and that probably represent us and them thinking on the issue of immigration, okay? One, border control is just common sense. You have to have borders. You have to have national borders. It's just obvious that you're supposed to have them and you're supposed to make sure that you constrain very carefully the number of people who come in. It's just common sense. No, it isn't. In the New Testament period, they didn't have them. Roman Empire didn't have them. They were used to have, you know, we had a period when everybody would just live according to their clans. And then we had a period when people lived according to their cities. And then we had a people, period when people lived according to, in colonies of other nations. It's only recently we've come up with countries which are really sort of boundaries around areas of land that are much larger than cities that define distance between you and me. They've only really been around since the end of the Napoleonic War. They're quite an odd idea in a lot of history, right? So it's not common sense. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have them but it just means that's not an argument, really, to say, well, we must have these things and enforce them this way. Well, maybe we shouldn't. Oh, by the way, I'm not saying we shouldn't have borders. I'm just saying, I, I don't know how I would get around the world if, I, if we didn't, but I'm just saying that's not an argument for saying we must have restrictions like the ones we do. Second argument you often hear, there's not enough space. <gasps> not enough space, but if we allow in immigrants, there won't be enough space for people. Well, I did some maths, because I like doing this. If the whole EU lived in the UK it would have a lower population density than Eastbourne. That's a nice little fact, isn't it? Eastbourne's quite leafy, I think. I know I would say that. I'm here. I know it's not as leafy, but it is still quite leafy. It's got a huge marshland in the middle. It's got the South Downs. It's got lots of space. You could put the whole EU population in Britain, and it would still have the same population density that, as Eastbourne, in fact, slightly lower. Right? If the whole world lived in the British Isles, we would have the same population density as Paris. It would be half the population density of Manila if you put the whole world in the British Isles. Fact! There you go. I say I like that kind of thing. In, in other words, and, and of course I said this to some of our staff the other day. I was just chatting about it and I said that. And then somebody said, but then where would we get food? Where would food come from? And I said, the rest of the world. <laughs> she was like, because the whole world now lives on Britain. Anyway, I'm not proposing that as an idea. I'm just saying sometimes the arguments people use are not that well thought through. Third argument you hear, immigrants steal our jobs. No, they don't. They compete for them just like you. They apply for them, and if they are going to work harder for the right same money or even less money, then they'll get them, and if not, then they won't. And they're not your jobs anyway, are they? Right? We're, I don't have an entitlement to be given a job by anybody. You have to work for it. Fourth thing you often hear, immigrants are a drain on the state. But again, it's just not true. Immigration is actually a boost for the economy. Because immigrants are usually younger, and they come and live here and work here, and then as they get old and often sicker, go back to the country they've come from. That's often what happens. You find that, that actually immigrants make a net contribution to the state. And it's British people who may, in the main, drain the state. British people, that, if, if you like stats, British people contributed a net fiscal loss of £591 billion between 95 and 2011. EU migrants, a net fiscal gain of 10 billion between 2007 and 2011. So in other words, British people make the drain the states and immigrants actually increase the coffers at the tax office. Immigration is also the main reason why birth rates here aren't collapsing, because immigrants have more children. And the reason why the rest of Europe is going, we don't have enough people to pay for our old people. We don't have enough babies. Not a problem in this church, I'd like to add, but it's a problem in a lot of parts of this country. But actually, the reason why we're not suddenly going, oh, we're all dying, you know, you see Japan, you think the reason why we don't have that problem of this sort of massively aging population is mainly because of immigration. So, 
Fifth reason you hear, nation states should make their own laws and not have them made in Brussels, obviously. But again, say, well, why? Why is a nation, this, this, why do we have to draw the lines around that? Why, don't, why not draw them around a county or around a town? What if London decided to go independent? You would all be immigrants. You'd all have to get passports to go into London. And then they, London say, no, no, we're going to put up our boundaries. We'd be in big trouble, by the way, if London did that because they've got all the money. So we would be going, oh, no, all of our jobs have been taken. All of our you say, you're not allowed in here, immigrants. It's just an interesting experiment, thought experiment. Maybe you think, wow, that, I don't know why it has to be. Why not Sussex? Let's go independent. Sussex, Sussex by the sea. Let's declare independence from the rest of the world. We've got probably quite a lot of grass and a lot of land, a lot of nice old buildings, a lot of jobs. Maybe we go independent and every time, are you from Cornwall? Out. You know, like we could, but there's no reason why it needs to be a nation state that does that. Sixth reason, we should be using our, t- our argument. We should be using taxes for British people, not foreigners. Well, why? Globally, GDP per head is 8,000 pounds. In this country, it's a lot more than that. Is there a good reason, a good Christian reason for thinking that we, because we live on this island, are entitled to all the money that we make? Maybe. I'm not sure what it is. I don't think that is necessarily a, a, an obvious point. Somebody, I asked somebody, seventh, re, seventh argument I hear, asked somebody the other day, how would you defend it? And they said, well, I don't let just anybody into my house, do I? And the same should be true of a country. Of course, the obvious question there is, do you do let just anybody into your town, into your street, into the county? So what's to say that a country should be like your house? A house is because of private property. But a nation isn't private property, so on what basis would you exclude people from that? Eighth thing you hear, we should be given a referendum on these things. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's an easy solution, I don't know. I just think referendums are good ways of guaranteeing that people who don't know anything make the decision. But that's just my pers- That's also true of democracy, to be fair. So I might just park that one, but it just makes me think sometimes. I just think, yeah, I, I wouldn't vote for doctors or lawyers. I don't know why I vote for this. Anyway, number nine, immigration disrupts communities. That's probably true. It probably is true. In the same way that babies disrupt families. And Gentiles disrupted the church. Sometimes disruption's good. I'm not saying it is always good. I know sometimes it causes a lot of social difficulty, but the fact that something causes social challenge isn't necessarily a reason to say we need to ban it. And then the tenth reason, tenth argument you hear, some immigrants don't even speak English. I always want to say, yeah, but all of us were immigrants at some point. There was no such thing as English. I don't know when your family immigrated to this country. I'm looking around and seeing, has anybody actually lived, their families lived on this island for the last 2,000 years? And I don't know. I, th- I look around and I'm just thinking, there's quite a few people who came over from Denmark and Germany. And there's some other people who come over from Africa and other people who come over from France. I think we're all immigrants at some point. And yes, we had to learn the language, but we managed it. And obviously what you find is first generation people may not speak the language perfectly, but their children will. So that, I don't think that's a great argument either. Those 10 things, which I find hiding behind some of the Daily Express headlines, may, in places, have some merit. But I think a lot of the time, they are a disguise or a front for good old-fashioned us and them. Not always. I'm certainly not saying everybody who believes any of the things I've just said is racist. That's not necessarily true at all. And I'm not saying that all immigration restrictions are wrong, because governments do have a right to say, if you're going to live here... You need to abide by our laws, and you need to respect our customs, and you need to not blow up our buses. So there's obviously a lot of things governments are entitled to do. And I'm not doing a Gordon Brown and saying, oh, you must be a bigoted woman if you, dis- if you want to ask about him. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying I think behind a lot of what's said 
it looks like on the surface this is a debate about policy when actually a lot of the arguments themselves are pretty hollow and underneath what's taking place is what I say good old-fashioned us and them. I'm not even saying that you should have open borders. I, the, in the Bible they did, but the world's changed since then. And that's not necessarily what we should do. And what I am saying is that in the gospel, Christians proclaim and embody the death of us and them, uh, which we do. And I'm re- that, that's the kind of the bad news. That's the sort of the critique. What I love is that the church isn't like that. I don't mean the church has never got it wrong, but I love that the church isn't like that, right? So this is, this is something I just found in the Daily Telegraph uh, about six months ago. I just thought this is really cool, okay? So the Telegraph is running a feature, and it's entitled Churches are Best Social Melting Pots in Modern Britain, okay? It begins. They teach that people should love their neighbor, but a major new study shows that churches are one of the few places most modern Britons might even meet them, which I thought was quite good. Groundbreaking new analysis of the friendship networks of almost 4,300 people aged from 13 to 80 has identified churches and sporting events as the last bastions of neighborliness and integration in Britain. Overall, it found that churches and other places of worship are more successful than any other social setting at bringing people of different backgrounds together, well ahead of gatherings such as parties, meetings, weddings, or venues like pubs and clubs. Look around you. Genuinely, look around you now. Have a look. I mean, sometimes you, you get it. Just have a look and look how different, even just in their age profile, their social background profile, and their ethnic profile, look how different people in this room are. There is almost no gathering in Britain happening today which will be more diverse than this. And that's because Christ has done something that the world cannot do. And so actually, for my objections, I'd talk about national policy. The main contribution the church makes in this area is to say, well, we are going to put on display what Paul elsewhere called the multicolored wisdom of God. I'm slightly ripping that word out of context because it wasn't primarily about racial color in his context. But we're putting on display a community of people who do genuinely see see migration as an opportunity to welcome foreigners, as an opportunity to say, you are unlike us, and therefore we love you, rather than you are unlike us, and therefore we don't. We welcome migrants and foreigners, the people the Old Testament called sojourners, and we welcome them into our land. Christians see immigration as good for the gospel, recognizing that actually the story of Acts is the story of migration. You read the book of Acts from beginning to end, you will be astonished by how much what we might call migration is happening. Sometimes it's migration inwards, like at Pentecost. All of these people from all around the world come into the city, hear the gospel, and then go back and take the gospel with them to Ethiopia, to, goodness, Britain even, right? So sometimes the migration is inwards. Sometimes the migration is outwards, what you might call scattering or whatever, Pauline mission. Right, I've gone here. The gospel's arrived. I'm now going to migrate to another place. If we had the borders we have now, the gospel would never have spread so far, so fast. We might still be objecting to it now. Christians see immigration as good for the gospel and as good for the church because it provides us with an opportunity to express the manifold wisdom of God even in fairly white places like Seaford and Eastbourne and where difficult decisions have to be made, which they do. I acknowledge I'm not an expert on this stuff and I'm not saying that it's simple. It clearly is not. But even when complex and difficult decisions have to be made, we do not allow the narrative of us and them to railroad us into behavior that is uncaring or unloving to our neighbors, even if we have to make tough calls. When Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He told them a story that basically said, those awkward foreigners who live in the same land as you. 
doesn't he? That's the Good Samaritan, really. Who's my neighbor? And he tells them a story that's deliberately designed to say, your neighbor is the people who live in the same country as you who you don't like very much because they're not like you, and you need to love them, and they are going to love you. So just have a look back at Colossians 3.11, right? I just love that if you just, Tiago, if you're able to put the final, um, final verse up on three, Colossians 3.11. I just love the word at the very beginning, which you could easily skim over. Here, here, there is not Greek and Jew. Here, right? You might find that outside. You might find Greeks and Jews hardening their divisions. You might find circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians and Scythians, slaves and free. Outside, you might say, okay, yeah, those lines exist, and we need to make sure that we preserve all borders and make sure that there's us over here, locals, and them over there, migrants, and we make sure that that line is as sharp as it can be. That might happen elsewhere, but, that, but not here, Paul is saying. Here, we don't have that. Here, it's not a thing. Here, in the church, in Jesus Christ's body, we don't have those divisions in the same way. We still recognize and actually celebrate difference within the community. We don't make everybody a sort of beige, you must all be exactly like each other, but we don't have divisions between them, and that might be allowed in other contexts, but we don't have it here because we're in Christ, and that's where the identity comes from. And it was just, it struck me as we had our Good Friday celebration a couple of weeks back. Graham, who leads the church, he was just marveling. He, was, he was just couldn't stop talking about it. He was just like, I cannot believe how diverse this group of people is. There was, I don't know, 200 of us or something. But he said, look, look at the number of different ethnic groups. Look at the different class backgrounds. Look at the age. There's, some, there's a four-year-old there sitting down with his family breaking bread. There's an 83-year-old there who had to get here very early in order just to be able to find a seat. And he's just sitting. And they're all breaking bread together. And they're all saying, Jesus died for me. And I love him. And that transcends any of the differences. And it moved him so deeply. He's not, he's not often like that. He just kept going on about it and saying, did you see how diverse people have become one in Christ in and through this church and so many others because all of us ultimately and this is where I'm going to conclude but all of us ultimately are immigrants I don't just mean that politically and geographically although that's true too but all of us unless you're Jewish which I imagine most of us are not unless you're Jewish you have as a Christian if you're a Christian here this morning have been welcomed in to a community that you don't deserve and weren't part of by birth and you've been given a land that you don't own, and you've been given a status that you cannot earn. And you have been raised with Christ, and you've been hidden with Christ in God. And Christ is our life, and he will one day appear, and we will appear with him in glory. And we came to him, came to Jesus, like destitute beggars seeking asylum, saying, I don't have a home, I don't have any stuff, I need you to take mercy on me and allow me into your home. I'm an asylum seeker, I'm in a camp on the other side of the channel, separated from you, and all good things are where you are, and no good thing is where I am. Would you please take me in? And he welcomed us in, no matter how difficult it made it for people, no matter how inconvenient it was for him, no matter how angry it made the neighbors, he said, come in, I will let you be part of my community, and he welcomed us. God in Christ has destroyed us and them. Here, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Amen? Let's stand for a moment, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for welcome as foreigners and others that we were welcome into a community because of what something you'd done for us we're, we're just so thankful I'd, ins and outs of policy and politics 
aside. We're just grateful that you came to our country and you set us free and actually then invited us into your country and allowed the borders that should rightly have been there to come crumbling down in the name of welcoming and loving those people who were not at all like you. That is at the heart of what you've done for me. And we can, we can vote and we can exercise wisdom and discernment. We can and should pray for those people who govern us so that they might have wisdom to make good calls about this stuff. But we, Lord, we, we say together, we will not allow ourselves to feel superior or better than or more deserving of your favor than anybody else. And we are so thankful that you didn't treat us that way and instead extended your welcome to all of us, wherever we're from, whatever we've done. We thank you for the gospel and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.